The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Amen. I'm going to invite you to be seated. We have a longer text this evening for our sermon text. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21, page 62, if you're using the Pew Bible. We'll consider the entire chapter, Exodus chapter 21 and verses 1 through 36. Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, let us worship the Lord by listening carefully, very carefully to this, the public reading of God's word. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall, only he shall pay for the loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine." But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. 
If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule." If the ox scores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall set the live ox and share its sorry, they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's seek his help together in prayer. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, we bless you for all of your word is is true and is, is given to us for our instruction. Father, we ask then that as we look to your word this evening that you would come to us and bless us. We would ask, O Lord, that you would open up our eyes this evening that we might behold wondrous things from your law by your grace. And the power of your Holy Spirit cause your word to be for us this evening, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May it even guide us on that path unto eternal life in Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. For it's in his name we do pray. Amen. Well, Christian, uh, this evening I would ask you the question, just, just how much do you see your need of Jesus Christ? How extensively do you feel your need of him in your life? The very question I think should move us this evening to, to cry out as we ought to have by the word we heard this morning. I need you, precious Jesus. Uh, when, always, and every second, where, everywhere I go. Now, why do I say that? Well, because... So extensive, so comprehensive is the, the, the demand of the law, the demand for obedience. It extends to every area of life, and I think we begin to see something of that as we see the, really the principles of the law, the principles of the Ten Commandments as they're fleshed out for Israel in her, her uh, civil and social law this evening the section uh, which immediately follows the Decalogue and which extends all the way to chapter 23 and verse 19 is known as the Covenant Code or the Book of the Covenant. But there and beyond, we see that God's law applies to everything. And if you remember what we saw last week, well, then on one level, that, that means that the law follows us everywhere into every area of life, striking terror into our hearts. Isn't that true? 
Every moment, everywhere we go, we would, we would hear the thunder, as it were. We would see the lightning, the fire, the, the, the smoke. We would tremble out of fear of judgment at the hands of a holy and righteous God. But for his grace, praise God for his grace, we also saw last week that wonderful provision, the provision of a mediator and the provision of the sacrifices by which sin could be atoned for. Of course, Pastor Hulse reminded us how all of this so wonderfully reminds us, of, or points us to Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking about that and about the commandments before us, even this evening, and it's just struck me how everywhere, everywhere we see the continual reminder of the curse of the law, but we also see everywhere the testimony of God's grace redeeming Grace, even in these commandments regarding slavery and homicide and injury and restitution and and so forth. We see here that the, the Lord is revealed to his people as a God, a God who is to his people kind and generous, a God who cares and has regard for life. We see God's wisdom. We see his Justice. We see his great concern that he deal with his people in, in, in ways that are according to his wisdom and in ways that are just and right. Our message this evening is this. God's laws, the commandments regarding slavery and homicide and injury reveal his wisdom and his justice as well as his kindness and his generosity, his grace. And I want us to consider that message as we consider two things, just two main points this evening. We'll consider first God's concern for Hebrew slaves, and then secondly, his, his concern for life and justice in general. So let's begin thinking about God's concern for those Hebrew slaves. Slavery, if we think about that in, in general, by slavery, that, that's, not a, that, that's a hot topic in our day, isn't it? There's a, there's a subject which, in the minds of many unbelievers, is a cause for hatred and automatic, outright rejection of Christianity. Doing evangelism downtown one night, I had a man up in my face, cursing in my face, not only with his mouth, but with both hands, showing that, that obscene gesture. Uh, what, what was he so angry about? Well, I was promoting Christianity, which according to him, promotes slavery. Christianity rejected, right? Case closed. And I've heard that argument more than once. You believe in slavery if you're a Christian, Let's think about that for a moment. Does the Bible endorse slavery? Does the Bible endorse slavery as we think of slavery as where a person is taken and sold as property, forced against their will into the service of an owner and master? You know, in one sense, to say that the Bible endorses slavery is kind of like saying, well, the Bible endorses death. As Christians, are we pro-death? Of course not. And it's important for us to point out this evening that that the institution of slavery was not God's doing. It never would have existed. It never would have existed in God's good creation any more than death would have existed in God's good creation. Its presence in the world is not God's fault. It's our fault. It's all the result of sin. 
I suppose I quite rightly could have asked that man downtown and said, what makes you think that you deserve any better than that which was experienced by the, than the most poorly treated slave in the history of mankind? Slavery, indeed bondage, bondage even to sin and death, hell itself, it is all the just desert of our sin. I think we need to understand that very well. And we should be, I think, continually reminded that at every point when we're confronted by God's law, it exposes our sin and it reminds us of just exactly what what we deserve. And I think that speaks to part of the reason why God allowed for slavery in the Old Testament. I'm thinking of slavery broadly speaking. This was particularly true in the case of Israel's conquered enemies, those ones who lived far away. Rather than being destroyed completely like those, who, who, those enemies that lived within the boundaries of the promised land, those ones who lived far away were made to become permanent slaves at times. Such permanent slavery was, we, we, we do well to remember, was forced upon them in that context of holy war where God was, was bringing judgment upon a, the, the nation's right for judgment. He was bringing judgment as a picture of that final judgment which will come upon all of the wicked. But even for them, even for those foreigners forced into that slavery, even for them it was preferable to death. And mercifully, they even had, had their rights protected and they were enabled to, to uh, enjoy the weekly Sabbath rest and so forth. So there was, there was grace revealed even in that context. But we see it even more with respect to the slavery which we see in our text this evening. This is legislation regarding the Hebrew slaves. This was slavery within the covenant community. It was a different kind of of slavery. Some might question whether we should even call it slavery, strictly speaking. But we see that it did begin with the sale of one person to another. Usually a Hebrew was was forced to sell himself into such service in order to pay off a debt, or it was simply because he'd, he'd become so, so poor that he could no longer support himself or support his family. In some ways, slavery was kind of seen as the only way out of an impossible situation. And once sold into such slavery or servitude, we might call it, he could then be sold from one master to another. So this was no doubt, this was slavery of a sort. But the remarkable thing which we see in our text is that there was an end, there was a termination to such slavery. This is grace. However, however undeserving the slave might be, however great might, been the, might have been the, the, the sin which led to this slavery, here the Lord was promising freedom. So we see it in verse 2. The slave was to serve for those six years, but in the seventh year, he was to go free for nothing. It's not completely clear how this worked together with that 50th year jubilee provision of Leviticus 25 or of the, the land rest sabbatical year provision of Deuteronomy chapter 15. Uh, we don't have the time this evening to look at every possible scripture text that, that might relate here, but it, but it was very clear He was to go free. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 14, tells us that he was to go and he was to be generally provided for. What generous grace. And we might be surprised by what we see 
in verse 4 there, uh, in verse 3, we see that a, a slave set free was to retain a wife who had been his wife before he became a slave, so there was to be no, no break, breaking up of any pre-existing family. However, the master would retain rights to a wife whom he, whom the master had provided for the slave, as well as any children produced from that union. That, that, that might just sound cruel to us. Well, it's important to remember here that, that in this context, the wife also would have had a debt to pay. She would have had the duties of her own term of slavery yet to be fulfilled, and so the rights of, even, of the master were also protected. But after all, presumably, the wife also then would have been released after her six years of service, at which point she would have been free then to return to her husband. And speaking of, of female, speaking of female slavery then, that's, that's what we see taken up in verses 7 through 11. Uh, the precise legal status of a female slave as described in these verses is, is debated. It seems clear that, that what we're dealing here is, is, is not simply the, the precise equivalent of the, 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 or the female equivalent of what we read about the male slave described in the previous verses. You know, the ESV there uses that same term, a slave, but the Hebrew term for, for female slur, uh, slave, we might say maidservant as opposed to manservant, as the terms are rendered in the King James in verse 7 there. That, that term for female slave is generally associated with, with marriage. So, so verse 7 envisions a, a sad but not uncommon situation where here once again uh, severe poverty financial crisis has actually led to a man selling his daughter to a wealthy man. And then she becomes more than just a slave worker, she actually becomes a wife. And so in this case, it's not, not that she is given as wife to another slave, as in verse 4. No, she actually becomes the wife of the master, or the wife of the master's son, as we see in verse 9. This is why, verse 7, she would not later just leave and go free as in the case of a male slave. This involves a marriage bond. Now, in many cases, it even sadly would involve a polygamous situation, kind of like the much, much earlier situation we're familiar with, with Zilpah and Bilhah, Jacob's extra wives who had been the maidservants of his first wives. These situations could be complex and complicated. We're not going to try to explore every single possible detail, but, but we do well to remember that this is the way life was in the ancient world, thinking in particular even beyond Israel. This is the way life was. In fact, this is the way it continues to be today, even in many, many countries. In fact, even in Africa, as missionaries, we witnessed this kind of thing. It wasn't called slavery, but similar to this. We can imagine a young girl who is from such a poor family. You know, it's, it's, it's not like a father just wakes up one day and says, wouldn't it be great to sell my, my daughter off into slavery and marriage? 
not, not, not to justify the, the, the evil of it, the sin that might be involved in these situations, but it does help us, I think, to understand the, the context that might have been involved in these situations. Just imagination, imagine a situation, such a sad situation. Maybe the family's discussing how to handle this, and they, they've determined, uh, they've determined that the, the best chance of, or the best hope of survival in this world, or any kind of decent life for their daughter is, is for her to go and be with a family that could at least provide for her. And so she ends up being sort of a, a maidservant, become wife. Sad, this was the reality, and what was particularly sad was how such women in that context were, were so vulnerable. They could become the, the victims of the worst kind of exploitation. A master husband could just decide that he doesn't like this wife anymore and could just sell her off, sell her off to foreigners. We think of Joseph's brother selling him off to the Ishmaelites. See, this is the kind of thing that might happen to this, a woman in this situation. This is the kind of thing that would happen among the pagan nations. Well, here we're reminded that it was not to be so among God's people. They were called to be holy. They were given his holy commandments, and his law protected the rights of such young women in Israel. So verse 8, if a master would-be husband decided not to keep a slave girl, it was really a, a violation. It was a breaking of faith, and her rights were to be preserved. She was not to be sold not to be sold to foreigners. She was to remain within Israel where she would be under the protection of God's holy commandments where her rights would be protected. She had the right to be redeemed within Israel. I mean, it might call to mind what a, what a wonderful thing. It was a different context. It didn't involve slavery, but what a wonderful thing such redemption meant in the life of Ruth. Or verse 9, if Given in marriage to the master's son, she was not to be treated as a slave. She was to be treated as a daughter. Or verse 10, she became one of multiple wives, a polygamous family. Her needs were not to be neglected in terms of her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. She was to be provided for. And, as verse 11 makes clear, if she was not properly provided for in any of these ways, if those particular three needs were not met, she had the right to be granted automatic freedom. God protected the rights of his, of his people. Female or male, God's law then revealed his great concern for Hebrew slaves. But then our second point this evening, the second section, we see, we see God's concern for life and for justice in general, we'll just think about the Lord's concern for life this evening, obviously, especially and particularly for human life. Note well how the section begins in verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. And so we see that, that capital punishment for murder, general principle, which goes all the way back to the beginning or at least goes back to the, the beginning of the world that now is, the post-flood world. Remember how God told Noah after the flood, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sh sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And why is that? Because God made man 
in his own image. And there again, right, right, right there, we, 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 we hear the thunder. We, we hear once again the curse of Sinai. There's the threat of death. In fact, that's what every sin deserves. The soul that sins shall die. And yet, think about this. Think about the fact that there, even in the context of the giving of that, that severe penal sanction, death for the offender, death particularly for the murderer, even that, that sounds forth the message of grace and that it reflects God's desire, not that life be destroyed, but that life be preserved. You know, we might say, well, why should God care? Why, why, why not just give us over to our murderous ways? Why not just allow us to murder each other, kill each other off? as we deserve, because he's a God of grace. He's a God who gives life. He has a great plan to give eternal life to all of the host of his redeemed. What grace indeed. And we see, we see it also as we see that in his gracious wisdom, his law made a distinction between voluntary and involuntary homicide, purposeful versus act accidental taking of a human life. So verse 13 speaks to those, those instances of accidental death. Better to say it was not planned by man, but it happened according to the providence of God. Note the language there in verse 13, that God let him fall into his hand. Humanly speaking, it was an accident. Maybe you were swinging your axe and suddenly the, the head flew off the handle and it went flying through the air and, and it knocked your neighbor right in the head and, and killed him. Well, in that case, the gracious, life-giving, life-preserving God provided those those cities of refuge where a man could flee in order to, to escape the avenging wrath of the family of the deceased. We witness that kind of thing as well in Africa, by the way. Sometimes if there was a tragic death, a family would want to take vengeance and, and, and put, put the man to death. And, and we had a situation where a man was brought to our clinic he, was, he wasn't dead yet. He was injured, and they were asking us to save the life, but they had the man who had injured him right there with, and the threat was, if you're not able to save him, we're going to put this one to death. God's law prevented such, such a hasty, unrighteous vengeance from being taken out. But now, even when a death was caused accidentally, there might well have been sin involved. Perhaps you were negligent. Perhaps you, didn't, perhaps you didn't take care to make sure that your axe was safe. Because human life is so precious, created in the image of God, we have a duty to be careful, don't we? So children, listen well when your parents say, be careful. Don't swing that axe, right? Be careful. You may hurt someone. You may hurt even yourself, even accidental death. It brought consequences, the one who, who committed involuntary homicide and fled to the city of refuge would have to have, had to have the case properly decided by the judges. And, and, and regardless of the outcome, he would remain there until the death of the high priest. Again, even accidents can involve sin. John Frame, in his work, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, I think helpfully, uh, writes about what he calls the doctrine of carefulness. We have a duty to be careful. But, as we see in verse 14, there was a difference, wasn't there, for willful, premeditated murder. In that case, there was to be no, no taking refuge in a, in a city of refuge. Note the language there. You shall take him 
from my altar. We might think of, of Joab clinging to the horns of the altar, seeking asylum which he, when he knew that he deserved to die. The Lord was saying, no, such a one is to be taken from my altar that he may die. Such willful disregard for life uh, was a sin which warranted death. And we see in in verse 16, it's really that same sin, the sin of disregard for life, which is also behind the evil of uh, forms of slavery which were not sanctioned by God. Note here that it's a, a different slavery. This is slavery that involves kidnapping, stealing a man, selling him as a slave. We see that for that sin, both the kidnapper seller and the one who bought the slave were both to be put to death. And then, interestingly, verse 17 deals with another sin, but it's, it's also a sin that is, again, tantamount to murder. What is to happen to the one who curses his father or mother? We've been thinking about the fifth commandment today, haven't we? We confessed it in our uh, reading of the law this morning. And children, listen well to this, right? I'm not standing up here threatening capital punishment, not at all, but we see how serious the Lord is about that fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And if you stop and think about it, really, what a, what a blatant disregard for life is that of dishonoring your parents, the very ones who gave you life, the ones who produced you, the ones whom God used to give you life. And this law, I think, speaks to that kind of tragic situation. We see, we see it further described in Deuteronomy chapter 21, that, that stubborn and rebellious son who will not listen to the voice of his parents. So many efforts to, to discipline only harden him more. He's the drunkard. He's the glutton. He curses his parents. And tragically, the command of Deuteronomy 21, 21 is, all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. How sad. Again, we hear the thunder, don't we? We, we? we feel the curse of Sinai's law. And verses 18 through 27 then deal with, with four types of acts involving violence which cause harm, injury, but not death. The victim does not die. We see the first in verses 18 through 19, it involves Two individuals, free individuals, they are not, these are not slaves. They get involved in a quarrel. It gets out of hand. It turns violent. Maybe ugly words turn into one of them throwing punches or even throwing stones, whatever. Uh, presumably, no one's innocent in this situation. Both have quarreled, but one is more guilty because he has struck the other and causes injury. Now, the injury, the injured man recovers, but the guilty man was required to pay for his loss of time and to take, cut, to take care of him during the recovery process. The injury prevents the man from working. Then the attacker was required to compensate for any lost wages. And then we see the second case, verses 20 and 21. And here again, these might strike us as hard verses. Admittedly, these aren't easy verses to deal with, are they? I mean, are they, uh, verses 20 and 21, is, is this condoning the action of a slave master who just beats his slave within an inch of death? Almost might, almost might seem to be teaching here that as long as the slave doesn't die, no problem, right? A slave's just property anyway. Uh, that would be the wrong interpretation. It really does miss 
the point here, keep in mind that, 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 that this immediately follows the directions about financial compensation for injuries caused. So the narrow point being made here is that in the case of a master-slave relationship, no such financial compensation would be required because the master himself would be the one also would suffering the financial loss and that it would be his slave who would not be able to work. It's very important to, to note that, that that statement, verse 21, the slave is his money, is not intended to speak to the more general question of how slaves ought to be treated or to, or, or to speak to their inherent worth or dignity as persons created in the image of God. The same point can be made with respect to what we see down in verse 32 about an ox killing a slave. These verses should not be, not be taken to contradict the truth that slaves were to be regarded as persons with dignity created in the image of God. And I think if you jump back up to verse 20, it makes that clear, right? Note well what should happen to the master who kills a slave. The slave dies under his hand. He shall be avenged. That, 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 that's debated what exactly that means, but I think it means that it was to be treated as murder, pure and simple, that the capital punishment, penal sanction of the previous verses would apply. And there's a very important point that needs to be made uh, in, in this regard. Israel's law was unique. They were God's holy people. Their law was very different than all other penal codes, all other law codes of the time. You know, in other law codes, there really was such a distinction made in terms of the value of life between those who were slaves and those who were free, but not so among God's people, not so among those who had the, the knowledge of the true God. They were, they were given to understand that ultimately there was no difference in Israel. They were continually reminded, you are all slaves in Egypt, and I redeemed you all, there's to be no difference then ultimately between the slave and the free, certainly in terms of the value of their life. I think that's further supported by what we see if we jump down to verses 26 and 27. This is the fourth type of a case involving violence in this section. What, what is to happen to a master who commits, who, who causes permanent injury to a slave, right? The loss of an eye, verse 26 or the loss of even a tooth, verse 27. You know, we might expect the answer to be this, well, what's the difference? The slave is property, right? That, that tooth belongs to the master. Who cares if he knocks it out? Uh, no, wrong. That may have been the standard of the pagan nations, but in Israel, a slave who was injured that way was to be granted automatic freedom. Why? Because all life, human life, created in the image of God was to be protected and treated with dignity and dignity, and that was certainly true among God's redeemed covenant people. All of life, all of life is sacred, all of life is precious, even the life of the unborn, verses 22 to 25, I think speaks so powerfully to the biblical position that unborn life is human life which ought to be protected. I'm not going to say much about that uh, this evening because in, in just over a month we're going to have a sermon that is devoted to the subject of, 
of what the Bible says about the unborn. It's going to be during our pro-life, our love life adoption week. So let that just whet your appetite for a, a closer look at this section. But again, even the unborn are included when we say that all human life is created by God in his image and therefore ought to be protected and treated with dignity. And this calls for special care, carefulness regarding anything that could possibly threaten or cause any, pose any kind of threat to life. You might say human life or even, even animal life. Notice what we see as we jump down to the last section, verses 33 through 36. Here again, the, the doctrine of carefulness. So if you open up or dig a pit, be careful. Be careful later when you're finished, not simply to leave it where it poses a danger, a threat. Someone's animal may fall into it and die. And if that happens, you're responsible. You own it. You make make restitution. Pay for it. You're also responsible, verse 35, if your ox butts another man's ox and kills it. You'll have to sell yours. Share the money with the other man. He will divide up and share with you the meat of the dead one. That's if it's, if it's an accident and if there's no uh, reason to, to have expected that that would happen. But, verse 36, you are even more liable if your ox was known to be violent and you did nothing about it. And so then it killed your neighbor's ox. In that case, you replace the ox and your, uh, and your neighbor gets to keep the, the meat of the dead animal that was killed. Why? Because you did not act responsibly with the information you had. You were not careful. And it's even more serious in the previous section, isn't it? Verses 28 through 32, because this deals with the situation where that, the violent ox kills not another animal, but actually kills a person. Here again, note the distinction. If this was a first-time event, so the ox was not known to be violent, this shouldn't have been expected, then the ox was to be, be killed and not eaten, maybe it was sick, but the owner was not liable. But, verse 29, here's the, here's the doctrine of carefulness emphasized very, very strongly, isn't it? You could, be, you could become guilty of committing a capital crime simply for not being careful, right? You knew that that ox wasn't right. You knew that it was dangerous. You took no precaution. You didn't keep the ox in, and now it has cost someone a life. That was serious. You might rightly pay for it with your own life. You might rightly be taken out and stoned. Just think on that this evening. Maybe that's a good place to stop. Have you, have you had enough of the law of God this evening in terms of the, the way it condemns and sentences you to death? Imagine that, stoned for an accident. Think on that. Just let that, that sobering thought make you, help you feel the weight, the burden, the curse of the law of God, the curse of Sinai. You know, I think our text this evening well supports the teaching of our shorter catechism when it teaches that some sins in themselves and by reason of several, several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. No doubt about that. And yet it also reminds us what the very next question teaches us, that every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. 
Let me simply, as we think on that, uh, end with the question with which I began the sermon. Christian, do you see your need of Christ? Do you feel your great need of your Savior this evening? Praise God that we see his redeeming grace everywhere in his law. Don't miss that. Don't miss it, by the way. In verse 30, you deserve to be stoned, but ah, there's hope, hope of redemption. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Christian, hear those words. And think about the way that that Christ gave for the redemption of your life. He gave that which was imposed upon him, even the cruel death of the cross for our salvation, for our redemption. Do you see your need of it? And do you see the redeeming grace of Christ, his justifying grace, grace by which we are forgiven and counted righteous, his sanctifying grace, grace which enables us by his spirit to die. You think about being stoned this evening. Think about the old you, the old you, dead in sin, taking out, taken out and being stoned, crucified with Christ, put to death in the death of your Savior, stoned, but praise God, stoned, but not left for dead, raised up again, raised up with Christ by the Spirit who has united you to him, your Savior. Do you believe this evening that you, you, you serve a God, that you belong to a God who, who is a God who is concerned about life, a God who preserves life, a God who gives life? He's given his own life, the life of his own beloved son for you, and his spirit enables you to, to die unto sin, but to live, to live unto righteousness. And to live unto righteousness, you live then as a person who is concerned about life, a person who's very careful not to cause harm, not to cause destruction, to live as a person who is careful, the doctrine of carefulness, careful not to cause harm, but only to help, to live as a person who, who does not oppress, a person who does not look down with scorn upon the lowly, a person who does not exalt yourself above those who are socially or economically below you, the slaves of this world, as it were. No, you understand. You understand that those lives are precious, particularly those of your brothers and sisters, that they are together with you, heirs of eternal life in Christ, all life. And if they don't belong to Christ, you pray that they will come to receive life in him. You have a Savior who, though he was eternally rich and glorious, high and exalted, lifted up, yet for you, he became the slave. He became the lowly one. He became the servant. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, that by his poverty, you might become rich. And now just think on this. Seated, united with him, you are seated with him in the heavenly places, reigning with Christ, reigning in glory, even for a thousand years. And yet, what does that look like in your life and in my life? I suppose we can, we can add this thought to all of the, the wonderful paradox of the Christian life. Here we are to see ourselves as reigning with Christ and glory. We're seeing the, the power of the resur- resur- resurrected life of the everlasting King of glory at work in us. And what does it look like? Well, we get down and we lower ourselves. 
we humble ourselves. We get down on our knees and we wash feet. We serve. We serve like lowly servants. And we count ourselves blessed. So blessed, so to do. Christ has redeemed you so that you might become the slave forever. I didn't talk about that one who chooses slavery over freedom because he has such a loving and kind master, but isn't that exactly what, what God has done for us in Christ? He's opened up our eyes to see his grace, his kindness, to see in Christ Jesus one so wonderful that we would, we would say to him, I love my master, I don't want to leave him, I want to serve him. And he's driven that, that owl into our ear and bound us to himself forever and ever. And we are blessed, blessed so to be bound. Look as we close this evening. Look at your bulletin once more at the larger catechism. I'll close on this. What is the use of the law this evening? We think of the moral law. And again, I think the principles of the moral law are fleshed out, yes, in ways unique to Israel, but in ways that apply to us as well, And so we do well to ask ourselves the question, what use, dear Christian, what use is the law of God to you this evening? What special use is there, is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Jump down to the fourth line where it says, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. Brothers and sisters, do you see this evening how bound you are to Christ, the one who has fulfilled the law for you, the one who endured the curse of the law for you. Do you not see that as the law comes to you from the hand of your gracious Savior, it is a law that is for your good and for the good of your people, your, your brothers and sisters? Will you not be provoked by it this evening unto thankfulness? Will you not express that thankfulness to your Savior by taking care to conform, to conform unto God's law is that, that rule of obedience, knowing is that by God's grace you are conformed unto obedience to his law. You're being conformed unto the image of him, your Savior, your Lord, your Redeemer. May God help us so to be, and more and more. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, we would cry out this evening, Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you oh so much, but how we bless you, oh God. You've given yourself to us. We bless you for your law-fulfilling, covenant-keeping obedience for us. We bless you this evening and praise you and thank you for your blood which washes away all of our sins. We thank you for the sanctifying presence and power of your spirit. Fill us again, we pray, Lord God, yes, with your word and with your spirit. Come to us, we pray, this evening and write your law upon our hearts that all the more we might delight in our Savior and that we might walk in closer fellowship with him and love him and love one another by keeping your commandments. Father, we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.